force production happens at different timescales and it depends on the task and, and the constraints of the person as well. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Clinical Athlete partnered with the Level Up Initiative is a network of healthcare providers, students and coaches who walk the walk and specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. Our first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to nurture the education and growth of those professionals through a community that strives to learn and get better. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. To learn more about us and to get involved, join the free Kalu Community Facebook group for great discussions, resources, events, and networking opportunities. Hit that link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hannock. I'm a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, mediocre weightlifter, and athlete in general, and co-founder of Clinical Athlete in Kalu. This show is a recording of a Kalu Journal Club that I led on a paper titled, Strength, Classification, and Diagnosis, Not All Strength is Created Equal by James et al. 2022. During this journal club, we discussed all things strength, classifications, and the measurement and application of strength. We hope you enjoy. You know, the big thing with with this paper, and I think the question that they were trying to uh, help to answer is we throw around terms all the time in our field and strength that probably is one of the most just ubiquitous. We, we almost throw strength out there to describe everything. Just get them strong or they got injured because they weren't strong enough or, you know, strength is protective, all these different ways to describe strength. And when we think about how you know, how varied different sports are and the different time scales and the different tasks. It's like, how can the term strength just be a catch-all for all of that? And so that was kind of the idea behind this paper is to try to put some definitions behind different um, classifications of strength. And so we can put some meaning to it. And then the idea would be that just driving our um, you know, testing and, and treatment or programming strategies going forward. So this is not necessarily a new idea. You know, they, they cited a, a model from 2002, Newton and Dugan out of Ball State. I've, I've read that paper. I actually pulled it up again. I'm going to read it again because it's a still a pretty good one um, where they are also kind of classifying maximum isometric strength versus rate of force development versus a maximum strength in a dynamic task like a squat versus a jump. And so trying to delineate some of these things. So these ideas have been around for a while. And this paper is just trying to create kind of a, a contemporary updated version of that. And so their objective kind of stated here was this article provides a contemporary resource for the practitioner to understand the various and distinct forms of strength, how they can be assessed, deficits in certain qualities, and intelligent informed decision-making in terms of program design. So I just kind of give my brief, brief thoughts. Um, and then I'd really like to hear everybody else's thoughts as well. And if I miss something in the chat, Megan will be on me, but you can type your question the way that Jeremy typed the word question. I actually prefer that. So the model is in figure one and they, you know, I guess consider this an updated model. It's not that much different from the 2002 model that they cited earlier, but they have this kind of this Venn diagram with five different circles. And, you know, part of the circles are overlapping and, and some of the circles are unique, which is a big piece here, but it's, they've got maximum isometric strength, heavy dynamic strength, fast dynamic strength, explosive strength and reactive strength. And the thought here is that each of these concepts or constructs are unique physical performance qualities. And the way that they describe their uniqueness is they use correlation coefficients. So they look at, they look at data and they, they look at data averages and 
they see some things that are if a if a movement is highly correlated meaning that r squared would be closer to 100 or closer to 1 then if one movement goes up then the other movement goes up by the same amount if one movement goes down then the other movement goes down by the same amount that would be a, a positive correlation it could go the other way it could be negative correlation where if one movement goes up, we can predict that the other movement is going down. That's still a correlation. It's just going in the opposite direction. So the higher the R squared, the more relationship you're going to see. And why that's important, according to the authors here, is that, well, if you have two, two tests that are highly correlated, why would you test both? It's redundant. So information from one test is going to give you basically the same information on the other test. They are going to get better in the same to the same degree or um, you know, whichever direction the correlation is going. So what they were looking for were performance qualities that were not correlated. So meaning, assuming when, when you see these performance qualities that are not correlated, you then assume that they're actually measuring different things. So then it would be important to measure both if, if you were looking for, for both qualities. So that's kind of how they made the distinction, which I can appreciate I think that's a I think that's a step in the right direction to to try to define what we're trying to test and and what we're trying to train. Um, but I think, you know, for those of you who read the paper, you're, it's still kind of gray and cloudy when we when we really try to dig into it. But that's kind of the idea behind the model. Um, and then in figure two, they try to give visual examples of of uh, representations of what those qualities would be. So an isometric strength in figure two, they've got an isometric mid-dipole. For explosive strength, it's the same isometric mid-dipole, but it's got a little clock icon. So the idea there is they're 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 trying to get to their peak as fast as possible from the jump. So that's explosive strength. Heavy maximum dynamic strength, they've got a back squat. And then the fast dynamic maximum dynamic strength, counter movement jump, and the reactive strength is a drop jump where they're trying to minimize ground contact time to contrast from a counter movement jump where you have a longer ground contact time and a deeper counter movement. Okay. So that's kind of the overview of the model. And um, then they kind of get into what I thought was in theory going to be more useful, which is the practical application, but maybe we can talk about that. So let me just throw it to the group. Any just general thoughts on the paper, questions, comments, concerns, ideas? This is where I this is where I get comfy with silence. So unmute yourself, throw it in the chat any way that you want. All right. I was gonna try to wait like five seconds, but no, I, go I can't do the silence to kill me. <laughs> uh, I mean, overall, I really liked it for especially for the level of evidence that it was. I I agree in that I thought the practicality of it was gonna be more practical, but I think Honestly, I think it's what our profession needs in the sense that it covers the basics of what does strength mean so we can stop throwing it around, like you said, in such like a ubiquitous way. And I think that once we can hammer the basics of, okay, I'm looking at mass, maximal isometric strength versus reactive and understanding that those are different qualities to train and assess that that's kind of where we need to be. So I, I like that this paper covered the basics of all right, this is under 0. 0.150 seconds, whereas a different strength quality is using a different um, kind of area of the force time curve. So I like that aspect of it. Um, other thing I liked was them going through giving the practical examples of an example or a test that can be used for each quality. The only thing I think Querello would have is obviously the feasibility of some of this. So I think at one point they somewhat addressed that saying, you know, you could do as simple as tape on the wall, jump height wise. But I do think some of these are a little harder to assess without some higher tech options. So I think that's always one thing to consider. I know a lot of us, we've talked about it on other calls using like the my jump app and stuff like that. You do have some options, but yeah, I think this is a good practical paper and a place to start for um, people looking to explore the different, I guess, sub qualities of strength and how to measure them. Um, and it was super helpful in my opinion. Thank you. Anybody else? I do want to hit on the testing piece a little bit for each component. Cause I think that's big here. 
uh, as, for anybody, but Azina, I've got you here. We can kind of go one by one, but do you have strategies for the max for max isometric strength testing? Yeah, I think one big thing that they hit on as far as strategies is the cueing because there are there is a good amount of research showing. It's weird because they didn't mention it, but I've definitely read research saying that cueing and intent of the test does change the outcome that you get. So I think one thing is just being extremely consistent in the setup and then the cueing of max isometric testing being as hard as possible, as fast as possible, because they talked about this, but the gradual ramp buildup, I'm personally not a fan of, and I've seen kind of how that drives different results. Mm-hmm. But they have a point in that it is more comfortable for athletes. Um, so I know, like, for example, baseball players tend to be a little more, I can't say it any other way than like soft. Um, so like they enjoy kind of the ramp up where a football player might be a little more likely to say, okay, like I'm going to go as fast as possible, as hard as possible. So that's one thing. And then as far another strategy, just being like comfort, I know that um, a consideration is grip. So thinking about the isometric mid thigh pull versus a belt squat, a lot of people are going towards the belt squat. And the nice thing is that the research shows that those are, you know, correlated tests. So you can kind of swap it out. And that's another helpful thing just in rehab. You know, if you're looking to still monitor someone's uh, maximal isometric strength, but they have a hand injury, you know, you can sort of swap that out. So I think that consistency and cueing and setup and just really the feasibility and comfort level are the big things for max isometric testing. What, what equipment do you have or what, what tests are you using? Um, we, I've used an isometric belt squat. So I have access to vault force plates, um, and just have a consistent setup that we do there based off of research and like sort of hammering down the joint angles. So making sure you're consistent in the knee flexion, hip flexion angle, um, being, yeah, pretty consistent there. I honestly do not use the isometric mid thigh pull a lot at all, just because of the grip factor. You, uh, I think they, we, we use straps. If we, we do isometric mid thigh pull, we, they can strap up and, and then just go, go to town on it. But, um, the equipment thing is, a you know, because so the same conversation will go if we're talking about isometric knee extension or a shoulder isometric test. I mean, these are all the same concepts. They use an isometric mid thigh pull, but that's just one method. So think, you know, depending on your setting, depending on your equipment, think about your implementation for all this stuff. And and so some of the big principles, like Azita said, would be cueing consistency being the number one thing. Just if whatever you say, just say that every single time. So you're testing apples to apples. The ramp up is kind of a, whether you have them go hundred percent right from the jump. I think it depends on just your intent of the test, right? If your intent is peak, you're okay with it happening slower because that's just, you're just looking for peak. And they do mention the paper that often peak can happen up to two and a half, three seconds in, you know, depending on the athlete. But um, those are, yeah, those are great thoughts. Any, if, if we're just talking kind of max, the maximum isometric strength piece first, any other thoughts on that from anyone? Um, real quick, going off of kind of what Azita said, we personally use little Tindec units. I don't know mm. if you guys are familiar with that. And we found a lot recently of when we use it, obviously like the cueing. So when you yell at somebody, obviously they're going to kick a little bit harder. And we found like, you know, me yelling versus three or four of us yelling at the athlete, kicking out the results change big time. Um, Crazy, right? so we yeah. find that like test retests, you know, reliability, making it consistent test to test to make sure, you know, like the setup is the same, but then the queuing is also the same every single time or else you're going to get these drastic changes. So. Well, and Amanda, like imagine, so you have the scenario where you have all four of your staff members just happen to be there that day when you're testing this athlete. So you all just like, yeah, yeah. and then they, they, you know, they crush it. But then the next time that you're going to test, it just happens to just be you. Right. And so now already the the scenario is different and and maybe they're just not as amped. So like stuff that you don't even think about. Right. And it's funny you yeah. mentioned that because I literally happened the other day where another PT was testing them. And obviously I come in and everyone's screaming, like, I just want to join in and scream, but it's like, damn, actually I need to take a step back and like, no, I need to keep it consistent on what he's been doing. Cause you change that environment around and it's obviously going to change the the results that you get. So just like trying to step back and not be a cheerleader that day, but 
lots of fa- and then the, the factors that we can't control like what if they just happen to take like a super pre-workout that session before they came to see you versus not you know what what te- so the 10 deck unit's awesome i have one I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that probably with the rate of force with the limitations there and really with any device at this point but what tests in that example were you doing so we do mostly just the peak extension. Um, we've played around with like peak hamstring, but the problem with it is they cramp like right off the bat. Um, so we put yeah. them like in a 90, 90 position. And then we've also put them at like a one twenty kind of like position and they just, they cramp right off the bat. So I'm still trying to figure out how I want to get like a isometric kind of hamstring to be able to get like a quad to hamstring ratio. Um, are you in prone or seated? Uh, they're in prone. So problem with our setup too is like, we have a big gym space to so like keep that environment the same. We want to keep it in the room and our room doesn't have a very good setup to like sit onto a box and pull without moving mm. equipment around. And we don't want to take them out to the gym space to where again, the environment is going to constantly be like changing. So we've been laying them down and prone, but obviously I think seated would probably be a better, a better setup for it to minimize the cramping, but yeah, I think seated is, is better to minimize both cramping. And also if you're trying to get a quad hamstring ratio, it's, the recommendation is to have them in the same position, right? Right. But it's t- that's so. This is what's tough about it. Uh, testing is not easy. Like just the, the, trying to make it repeatable. I've, I don't know about you all, but I've wait. It's not. I don't say waste because I think every time you attempt a test, it's good practice. But I've sp- I've there's been so many scenarios with a patient in front of me where this is an actual session where I'm testing and I'm just fumbling with the setup. I can't get it right. I can't get the angles right. The system's not rigid. The strap comes off, you know, 20 minutes of just fumbling around and I've got crappy data Yeah. and it sucks. It's embarrassing. First of all, it's embarrassing. And second of all, it's like, it takes a while. And so I think the more you can just practice, like once that patient leaves, I'm in there in the lab again, just trying to fix a setup. You know, one of our athletes in the gym, just working on, Hey, come over here, you know, be my Guinea pig, jump on this thing. Um, but thanks for, thanks for that. I, I think those things are, um, things that we don't think about. That's really, really good insight. And, uh, yeah, Tindak, Jeremy has got some germ. Sorry. It was weird. I called you Jeremy. Jeremy put some info in the chat. It's actually a climbing. The company is super interesting. It's out of, uh, Germany, I believe. And it's a climbing it's for climbers first and foremost, but it's a, it's a tension dynamometer. Um, and it's just a small unit. It's made of wood. It's, it's nothing fancy except the app has, it has an awesome app. It's a Bluetooth app that shows you the force trace it. You can train. So it'll, it'll, you can set thresholds and it's gives you some real-time feedback Norway. Okay. And it's great. And it's to me, my recommend, it's been my recommendation for a cost effective. I think it's about probably a little bit more than 150 bucks, maybe 160 with tax, something like that now, but for what you get, quality unit, you know, it, it does its job very, very well. Um, and yeah, they did just come out with one that has a much higher uh, limit. So you could potentially do isometric mid thigh pulls now. Um, whereas before it was more, people could max it. I was like 400 pound limit and people could max that on an isometric mid thigh pull pretty easy. 220 for the 300 unit. Yeah. That's because I have a Mark 10 dynamometer. That's a push pull, which was $800 with a 500 pound unit limit, which sounds like a lot, but on an isometric mid thigh pull or isometric squat, female, male, like they're, they're maxing that out. You'd be surprised. Athletes are strong. So it kind of depends on who you're testing. Um, but yeah, so, so other thoughts on max isometric testing. Um, I, I probably have a pretty good like example of how the like that ties in line with this paper in terms of like how isometric testing isn't going to give you the whole picture of an athlete. Mm. Uh, so I'm on clinical right now at our at rehab to perform, and so we had a soccer athlete. Uh, he was ACL about 12 months or 11 months when I saw him, and so he we we had him on the 10 deck strength measures, and he was about three three and a half newton meters per kilogram on his uh, quad index on both sides. So he was very strong isometrically, but then when we put him on the force plates and did different like depth drops, I think I said he had a 30 to 40% reactive strength index asymmetry or like impulse just on the left side, like on his affected side. Mm. Also during like videoing him on sprinting, 
like sprinting on a treadmill a lot more. It was like 40 to 50% more ground contact time on the affected side. And then same thing with like a snap down single leg jump up onto a box. Like from the time he snapped down to jumping up, uh, the ground contact time, same thing with the impulse was just, uh, like 40% longer, um, than the unaffected side. So that's just a good example of, he was very strong isometrically, but then when you put in the force time component and he has to create that impulse faster, uh, it was just severely lacking. So after like four weeks of training, you know, like you said, it's hard to like retest, retest that stuff's even harder than just isometric, like it is hard. retesting yeah. in similar environments for like impulse and force time. But subjectively, like taking those videos again and like counting the frames and all that, there was a large improvement after like doing more specific things with like uh, impulse focused uh, exercises versus just slow strength. So I think that's just a good example of like, you can be strong in one way and weak in another way. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. That's awesome. And they have a really good, I actually thought they, the, the authors closed the paper with a, a, a paragraph to kind of underline that point. Let's see what they say. They said distinct strength qualities exist. So practitioners, practitioners must have sophisticated assessment systems to isolate the forms of strength most relevant to their sport. And now my kind of modification interpretation is we can kind of get lost in what question we're trying to ask here. And, but Peter's real life example there is like, Oh, okay. When you, when you see that play out in real life, we can at least simplify this by saying, all right, force production happens at different timescales and it depends on the task and, and the constraints of the person as well. So being good at one to Peter's point, or we say good, like meeting some arbitrary standard, which in this case, it was symmetry and also relative torque production, that three Newton meter threshold that can, you can meet those standards in one of these buckets and then require force production on a different time scale faster. And all of a sudden they're not meeting the same relative standards. So when you see it play out like that in the clinic, you're like, Oh, okay. Then it becomes a, can I even assess for this reliably? Training is almost like easier in the sense of, well, let's start doing things a little faster maybe, or like lifting faster, but it's, it's almost like the assessment of are they getting better is where the challenge is, especially if, the equipment you're limited with equipment. And even if you have the equipment getting a consistent, reliable setup. So Peter, you mentioned that you have force plates at, at your clinical right now at rehab to perform. And, um, we kind of lumped in the reactive strength with the explosive strength. And I'm just kind of going on the model here. The, they differentiate the explosive strength being low load, but you're not necessarily um, limited with time. So think of like a counter movement jump, you can self-select and think of jump height as your proxy for how explosively strong you are. Whereas with reactive strength, we're looking at, can you produce a certain amount of force in a very limited, a very limited time uh, scale. So a drop jump is a proxy there because the idea is you minimize ground contact, you jump as high as you can, but within a certain ground contact constraint. Cause if I jump off a 10 foot box, I'm just going to get pl- stapled into the ground. Um, so the idea is finding that height where you can stay sp- springy off the ground. They give a nice little threshold of, of a quarter of a second. And I kind of like that. I've actually been using that as a somewhat, like I kind of get a gauge when I'm having somebody do a drop jump or if they're ready for that, do it enough to where I can see, I'm like, all right, off the ground fast, boom, 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 use these cues. And on kind of average around 0.25, 0.3, if they're staying around there, I want to keep them at that ground contact time or faster and jump higher over time. So I'm not interested in them spending more time on the ground to jump higher because I can just test a counter movement jump for that. But I want to, I personally try to keep some type of ceiling on ground contact time and then see if there's a change in jump height. And, or if they jump 
the same height, but uh, less ground contact time. So How are you measuring their jump height on that? Is that subjectively or using like a pad? I have a great eye for it. No, I use, I use an app called the MyJump app. So you could use force plates. You could use a jump mat. Um, but, I, but I personally use the, an app called MyJump2. It's like 12 bucks. And I, rec- I don't have, there's no affiliate link here. This is just what I, it's an awesome app. It's been studied by, it's been researched by groups other than the creators over the last five to seven years. So it's been shown to be valid, reliable. Um, and I use it for all, all my jump measurements. Quinn, yes. do you know, do we have like vector measurements on force plates? Cause my, all my force plates were kind of like black box. I didn't see the calculations and stuff. They just spit out kind of information. Do we have vector measurements? Because if we're looking at how high somebody's ju- jumping, right. So the application of force, if it's more, you know, horizontal than it is vertical, I'm going to have a, a, a difference of height, right? But it could, you know, I could still meet your metric of time of which that force is applied, but that vertical application of force needs to be in the vertical vector. Otherwise I'm losing height, right? So are we having a way to measure that, that how we're applying that force, what angle that force is being applied? Uh, some, some, force plates do measure all vectors, but uh, so we're kind of getting into like, if, if, are you saying if the, if the force plate only measures vertical? Well, I mean, if we're just using, if we're using a proxy of, of how high or flight time, right. So if we're using my jump, it's a flight time thing. So we're using that as a proxy for height, right. I mean, that's kind of what that app's looking at because it's not actually looking at how high you're jumping. It's looking how long your feet are in the air. Right. Well, yes, correct. But you can right, use, so, yeah. Right, but if I'm jumping horizontal, right, versus vertical, right, and I'm still within your time frame, I'm going to get a different vertical measurement, even though, right, so I, I can play with that a little bit because if I land and I'm going straight up and landing right onto my feet, that's more vertical, right? Are you measuring horizontal displacement in those? Because we're, we're, we're now losing some of that vertical impulse, right? Some of that force is going and bleeding out another direction if they're landing forward or moving forward, right? So that may alter your your calculation of how much force are actually producing at that point in time because vectors matter in force application. Yeah, I I mean, you don't think it's enough I, to, to to look at? That's always been my no, knock on like I, my jump app. Well, I think you could make you're you're basically just talking about like if. Cause nobody's going to cheat the test by jumping forward. So I, I think you're going to find that to be a problem with any, if they're like jumping forward or backwards, that's just going to be a, Hey, jump, like draw a line, same spot, land on a state. line. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's just a coaching, that's okay, a kind of coaching think. problem. Okay. Yeah. But I, I mean, I hear what you're saying and that's going to be part of the inherent error of the measurement is the, Nobody's going to jump. It's just like rolling a rock down the hill. It's not going to roll down the same path twice. So nobody's going to jump in the same path twice, exactly the same. You live with whatever degree of error that is. And if, if they're such an athlete that they're all over the place, the jump test is, they're probably not developed yet not, not for that test, test to matter. Yeah, right. exactly. It's something to look for though. Stuff like that is exactly like to look at it from different angles. Cause if, right. If they're landing all over the place. Right. I didn't know if, if, if like force weights measures give you, here's the vertical displacement, right? Here's like kind of the vector of what went down versus what went horizontal or stuff. And so that you could actually break out and get a total force and just correct towards or vertical. Right. And that gives you a calculation. Um, yeah. The ones that I had messed with in the, back in the day, did not do that, but I, but I know that there are models that do measure the horizontal vectors as well. And then try to do a, try to have an aggregate vector as the output. Right. Okay. That's what I was wondering if we standardize through or whatever. So yeah, my jump app. Okay. It's, it's 15 bucks. I think when I bought it back in the day, it was still 10, but 15, it's fucking worth it. $15, three of your coffees that you get at Starbucks, you know, next week are going to, yeah, I know Shane inflation, right? Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Here is your brain break from this awesome discussion about all things strength. 
a little addendum. Later in the discussion, we are talking about rate of force development and much of the literature recommending equipment that samples at 500 to 1,000 hertz for a reliable rate of force measure. However, I wanted to add here that there is emerging data suggesting equipment that samples at 100 hertz is adequate for a reliable rate of force development measure when taken as the slope between 20 and 80% of peak force. If that doesn't mean much to you right now, don't worry about it. I just wanted to mention it. You can also check out the name of the company that we mentioned that makes the force gauge that we discussed, Tindek, T-I-N-D-E-Q. Their Instagram handle is in the show notes. And their 300 level unit does sample at around 100 hertz. Also, remember, if you're brand new to Kalu and want to get more involved in all the things we do, join the free Kalu Community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. That's Kalu, C-A-L-U or Kalu, however you want to pronounce it, community on Facebook, or you can just hit the link in the show notes. Also, if you're one of our six listeners who enjoys this podcast, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this info out to as many people as possible. Okay, back to the show. Now, rate of force, so, or explosive strength, as they put it in this model, they mention explosive strength kind of being a, a term to describe a few things. It could be rate of force. So if you look at that force time curve on in figure three, imagine that's somebody who's either standing on force plates or they're kicking out against a dynamometer. And so that, that initial flat line is just them kind of chilling. And then the coaches say go, and then they pull or they do whatever the test is. And so that force shoots up the slope of that line is rate of force development change in force over change in time. That's rate of force, rate of force. And so now you can take, and they, they kind of get different timescales. You can take subsections of that slope and say, this is the rate, this is the average rate of force of this section of time from half a second to a second. That sounds awesome. And it's super sciencey and fancy. The equipment to, in order to do that uh, accurately is not within all of our grasp. There are force force plates can can do this with like an isometric mid thigh pull or a jump. But even force plates, if if it's not sampled, so the recommendation for equipment to be able to accurately tease out the line there and get a, an accurate sample is a thousand hertz frequency is recommended, five hundred at absolute minimum. And what that means is every second the the equipment is is pulling a thousand data points so for every second it's going boo, 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 here's your force bam, 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 a thousand times in a second so you can imagine then how clear that line will be and how accurate each little deviation will be to contrast my mark 10 dynamometer samples at 10 hertz so for every second it takes 10 samples of data so if you were to connect those dots literally it would look like a child took a crayon and just drew a straight line. Like the, 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 the um, resolution would not be clear enough for you to accurately say, Oh, this is the rate of force at this time scale. And now I can compare this to a subsequent test. The Tindek samples at 80. So again, rec the recommendation as a literature is to have equipment that samples at a thousand, if possible, 500 at minimum. So the Tindek is awesome as it is for peak, it samples at 80. And it's got a rate of force development thing in the app. But again, I don't know if that data is gonna be anything that you would want to use. So my point here being is that the explosive strength or the explosive part of this model and rate of force development in general, there is likely something to that, like producing force at high rates as fast as you can within the moment, because that's what we have to do in sport, but testing it is just super tough. And I would love to hear if anybody looks at that, um, do you measure impulse? Cause that might be a better way to do it is what impulse is. If you look at figure three, that force time curve impulse is the area underneath that curve. So if you just shaded it, that entire area, 
That's force times time. That's the impulse of that. That's as much force that was generated over those four seconds. So what you could do then is go over, go up that line and go up to 200 milliseconds where it's red, that first red uh, distinction, go to that dot and draw a line straight down to the x-axis. Now shade in what's underneath that. And you could measure, so that would be impulse. So you could measure the impulse from that dot instead of trying to measure the slope of that squiggly line that probably doesn't have enough resolution for you to do accurately. You can measure the area under the underneath it, which has less error because you just, it's okay. It, it, it's, there's just more room. There's more room for error in a good way. So uh, what people will recommend is, is trying to measure impulse, but you know, it's, takes calculus and it takes an Excel sheet or whatever app that you, you know, software that you have, again, not easy, but a potential workaround if you're really looking to go into the weeds with something like this, but I'm going to shut up. Anybody um, thoughts on rate of force development, explosive strength, what you do in the clinic, in the gym, whatever. Uh, so I had some thoughts on that and I feel like I could just use the same example and like this one wouldn't be using exact numbers, but say with my athlete. So for him to generate force into the ground and take off, he has to generate an impulse, correct? So if he's having those strong numbers on the Tindex, so we know like impulse can be affected by like, you can increase impulse by peak force or rate of force development. If we know that he has good peak force numbers on the isometric dynamometer with knee extension and then, but his impulse obviously is limited. Wouldn't, couldn't you then infer that his rate of force development is, is impaired. And then by proxy, if, the ground contact time during those jumps is decreasing or during sprinting is decreasing, then you can infer the rate of force development is increasing. Like you obviously wouldn't have any exact numbers, but like if you're having those high force outputs, high peak force outputs, but then it's not being referred in the impulse observation, then I would infer that it's rate of force development. That's the issue. Yeah. I mean, Peter, you, you basically described the workarounds that we, that we have to make assumptions because we're not, because you said it, like we don't have the numbers and we're not, we, we're not measuring it directly. So we have to, we have to kind of make these assumptions say, okay, well, he can, he can produce a peak that's equal to the other side, but he can't jump as high on that side. And he spends more time and, or he spends more time on the ground. A lot of times it's doesn't jump as high and spends more time on the ground. And so, yeah, then it, then it's like, that's why big picture, how useful are these models and these terms and these buckets if we don't have the capability to delineate quite yet in practice. So it's like, to me, terms, models are only as useful as they are functional or as, as we can use them. And so in basically what you do then in your mind or what you describe there and what I probably do clinically too is bucket in all of the qualities that require somebody to jump high and to do it fast, this person doesn't have that. <laughs> and, and so like, and then, and then trying to see, well, what can I test and, and kind of going from there. But yeah, you're right about that. I think you described like what we see clinically taking this like scientific sports science model and then what we see clinically and then trying to describe something, you know, in the middle, because I think where it becomes relevant, I, I think is conversations like this, where I can say, yes, I infer, I infer, I infer here. The, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I'm assuming like three levels of inference and assumption later, it's hard to have a conversation about it because I wasn't there. Nobody else was there. Maybe we assume different things. You know what I mean? So we, we try to find where we can converge. That's not just our observation and that's feasible. And we, you know, so it's that tug of war, the art and the science that people say, maybe that's what that means. Did we just cross that barrier? Peter, thank you for that. I think that's a, that's a really, really good example of what, of what you would see clinically too. <clears throat> yeah. Cause I, I try to find a way to be scientific, but still practical at the same time. Um, and it's like, yeah. how scientific do you need to be uh, in order to like have a positive impact on the patient and be, you know, above, cause even just assessing these things and, and looking at that, I think is doing more than the average therapist. 
not that that's like the standard of the goal. Right. But yeah. And, and it's like, we could go down the rabbit hole of like, what is science as well, which we won't, but if science is to nudge, not to prove, then we're just trying to use papers like this. And again, this is not, this was not a study, you know, this is not hard data. This was just kind of an opinion piece. Um, But you're trying to use these types of things as guide rails. And then we explore and observe and, and then come back to the literature and compare our observations and say, am I, am I thinking way off base or am I, you know, that's, that's kind of the, um, the nature of these things. Other, yeah, go ahead. Um, for the, I'm just curious, like from a, the examples you gave, like if you are doing this kind of testing, is your main goal in clinic just a return to play or is the goal ever you have an athlete who just wants to improve that strength quality because they want to, you know, improve their max metric on in, in their sport, or is it always you testing it so that they can return to their sport safely? Oh, no, I think this is uh this is a, a performance and a rehab conversation. These, the, the authors of this paper were all like uh, performance-based sports scientists and professors. So I think it's both could be both for sure. I have a thought. Yeah. Um, this, and I don't know if this is like going to be a good parallel, but I was thinking through like the challenge of having too many like primary outcomes or secondary outcomes in research papers, Mm. because you can find something if you pull enough. And it made me think of the sheer amount of testing that if we do too many tests, we're going to find something that's probably a discrepancy that we could act on. And it made me think about in our clinic, we just got a Kaiser leg extension and we were messing around with, so we have a Mark 10. So we've been testing peak knee extension on that, but you can see wattage on the Kaiser leg extension. So we were looking at I guess 60% of the, the one RM at like 60 degrees. And then we would do a five rep max kick as hard as as possible and see what the, the peak wattage was. And then the drop off, it shows a percentage. And this individual that we tested, he was at like 90% pop testing 90% or above peak torque. But then with this like random kind of Kaiser test that we came, there was like a giant discrepancy, but I was like, he's checked all these boxes. This dude's not even going back to sport. It's just, we wanted to play around with it. And I just thought of this, like how many, if we just keep having more tests, there's probably a high chance that one of these tests are just going to show something. And then if we act on it, is it even helping? Mm. I love, I have a few thoughts on that. One, I would never act on one of a result on one test anyway, because, you know, random noise, you don't know if there's a a learning effect with this particular movement or this new thing you had them do. So it's like, for me, get, get out of the, uh, or get rid of the familiarization phase, get over that. And then try to see like where the average data starts to settle a little bit. So that's for all these tests. So I do think that's why I think serial testing over time is important. But to your point, what what are those? And we could all think of something that we could do athletically that we suck at. And there's probably a lot more that we don't even realize. So where I think then that maybe a paper like this comes in handy is that you find us a discrepancy like that or this is how I would, what I would question. And it's like, okay, what did I, what did I just test? Did I test a skill? Did they just suck at this thing? Cause it was different and new. And I literally tested their ability to do this thing. Or did I, did I assess some quality? And, you know, I don't have the answer there, Chris, but then it's like, could, okay, can I assess this reliably again? First of all, can I even set this up again with the same you know, the same settings and, and in the same environment. And two, what is it in, ter- what is it in relation to the other tests that I have? And I don't have the answer to that, but I think if you can't, if you can't really like, if your gut tells you that you just did something random and you're chasing ghosts, it's, it's maybe, it's maybe something to like dig into on your own and learn and, and like do what you're doing right now versus before you like take action with the person. But yeah, that's Paul mentioned the force plates earlier. If you, I mean, hell, 
look at like the software from Vald or Hawkins Dynamics and do have somebody do a counter movement jump. However many variables and metrics you want, you'll get. Eccentric, concentric, every time point, there's the strategy that they use changes things, you know, deep counter movement versus not. Do you self, do you have them self select? Do you try to standardize it? Um, breaking forces, all of these things. You can get like so many layers deep. And I, yeah, I don't have the answer, but if you can just kind of reverse engineer the big picture, like with a jump, okay. How high did they do it? How high did they jump? Do they jump higher than they did? <laughs> Is there a difference from side to side in their jump height? And then you can start maybe digging into strategies. Are they, do they not want to load into that leg as much? Like, all right, I self-select, I allowed them to self-select their counter movement depth. But on this side, they go way more shallow. The force plate isn't going to tell us why. All you see is you can observe it and you can measure it. But going after it, I think, is what you're kind of getting at. It's like, I can find a problem if I want to. So I don't know. The question is always, what is that problem? Right. Is it a problem that's in the is clinic or is it a problem that's on the field? Does it lead to athletic performance deficiencies? And even if we're testing, are those tests actually testing just a minimum barrier? Or are they actually testing what they need to be able to perform at the level they're performing at before? Transfer to the sport is like probably even a whole different thing, potentially. I mean, we only assume that like a back squat, if you can, if you can jump, if you can jump high and you can jump higher and you're getting stronger in the back squat, oh, you're going to, you know, your performance metric is going to be better. But they do, I think they actually even touch on that a little bit, which I appreciated. Delineating like at the top, are you winning? Are you, the wins and losses. And then you can lose, but still have really good stats. Or you can win and have crappy stats. So they kind of like performance metrics. And then it was like down here. Do they, are their knees strong, you know? And there's a whole lot of, yeah, the questions of does that matter? JP, you got a question about explosive strength. Go ahead. Yeah. So it was just, um, the whole paper was, you know, pretty clear and then helpful in, you know, clearing out some of those, um, differences in strength qualities. But the part that I was a little confused on was the explosive strength section. Um, if I'm understanding it correctly, what they're saying with explosive strength is they're measuring the peak force in a constrained amount of time, because I know they also talked about, you know, right. part of explosive strength is rate of force development impulse, right? Rather, I think they were delineating that the previous authors maybe just put rate of force development as like a separate quality, but they're almost saying it's part of it. And I, if I'm understanding correctly, they're measuring peak force within a constrained amount of time. Is that right? Yeah, you're right. Um, because fast dynamic strength is more of the jump. So they mentioned in the old 2002 model, that old crew put rate of force development with jumps or isometric mid-thigh pulls or anything. It was just the force curve, no matter what the movement was. But what they found was over, I guess this, this author set saw that rate of force development during a isometric mid-thigh pull task, for example, or of maximum isometric task did not have a relationship with rate of force development in a jump. And so they wanted to separate those things. And so now they put jumps into fast dynamic strength and rate of force development is now under the umbrella of explosive strength. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. In this model, explosive strength is force within time constraints. Got it. That's helpful. Thank you. Point here is I love this actually because it's a bigger discussion of models and mental models and what we use to try to understand. So this is a conceptual model. These authors are trying to propose. They're not proposing like this is explosive strength. This is that. This is the way that you should think about. It. That's not what they're doing at all. Um, what they're doing is they're proposing a framework. They're proposing a conceptual model that could potentially be studied in the future. 
be used in actual research to be studied and potentially be used practically now if we want it to. But as the famous statistician George Box once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And so all everything, all these questions that we're throwing out there, the, these are the limitations of this of this model. And that's to be expected. So I think the first thing we do is we identify this, the assumptions and the limitations and we try to identify where this model could be useful in our practice, compare it to our mental model of what these things were, which is kind of a fun little like learning thought experiment. I like to come into a paper with like, what do I understand on this topic and what models do I use currently? Then I read the paper and kind of compare it and maybe update a little bit my mental model. So just kind of a bigger picture of this. Don't get too like bogged down with memorizing these five buckets and trying to create like your exercise program has to, there has to be one exercise for each of these buckets. Um, you could do that, but that's not necessarily what this is, what this is for. It's more of just get you to think broadly. If at minimum, if it's what Peter mentioned before, where I've got a test that I think is good for maximum force, just straight up, how much force can this organism generate? And I've got something that I look at that has a time component to it. And you realize the importance of that based on this paper. I think, I think those authors would say that that's a win. Okay. We hope you enjoyed the show and came away with some newfound considerations when it comes to strength. And one more time, if you're into brain gains, join the free Kalu community Facebook group for great discussions and resources and lots of learning and networking opportunities. And if you're ready to jump in with both feet into our famed Kalu Plus community and take our foundations courses, then fill out the application that we have in the show notes and we'll talk. Our courses are centered around creating a process for your exercise prescription. So if you enjoyed this show, you will love our educational curriculum. Otherwise, thank you so much, Clinical Athlete and Cali community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. We'll talk to you soon.